Part Two, Chapter Five of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Part Two, Chapter Five. As late, engaged by fancy's dream, I lay beside a rapid stream. I saw my first come gliding by, its airy form soon caught my eye. Its texture frail and color various, like human hopes and life precarious. Sudden my second caught my ear, and filled my soul with constant fear. I quickly rose, and home I ran, my hole was hissing in the pan. Riddle Flora revised the letter to the principal, and the ladies' committee approved, after having proposed seven amendments, all of which Flora caused to topple over by their own weakness. After interval sufficient to render the nine ladies very anxious, the principal wrote from Scotland, where he was spending the long vacation, and informed them that their request should be laid before the next college meeting. After the committee had sat upon this letter, the two sisters walked home in much greater harmony than after the former meeting. Etheldred had recovered her candor, and was willing to own that it was not art, but good sense, that gave her sister so much ascendancy. She began to be hopeful, and to declare that Flora might yet do something even with the ladies. Flora was gratified by the approval that no one in the house could help valuing. Positively, said Flora, I believe I may in time. You see, there are different ways of acting, as an authority, or as an equal." The authority can move from without, the equal must from within, said Ethel. Just so, we must circumvent their prejudices instead of trying to beat them down. If you only could have the proper catechism restored. Wait, you will see. Let me feel my ground. Or if we could only abdicate into the hands of the rightful power. The rightful power would not be much obliged to you. That is the worst of it, said Ethel. It is sad to hear the sick people say that Dr. May is more to them than any parson. It shows that they have so entirely lost the notion of what their clergyman should be. Dr. May is the man most looked up to in this town, said Flora, and that gives weight to us in the committee, but it is all in the using. Yes, said Ethel, hesitatingly. You see, we have the prestige of better birth and better education, as well as of having the chief property in the town, and of being the largest subscribers, added to his personal character, said Flora, so that everything conspires to render us leaders, and our age alone prevented us from assuming our post sooner. They were at home by this time, and entering the hall, perceived that the whole party were in the lawn. The consolation of the children for the departure of Hector and Tom was a bowl of soapsuds and some tobacco pipes, and they had collected the house to admire and assist, even Margaret's couch being drawn close to the window. Bubbles is one of the most fascinating of sports. There is the soft, foamy mass, like driven snow, or like whipped cream. Blanche bends down to blow a honeycomb, holding the bowl of the pipe in the water. At her gurgling blasts, there slowly heaves upwards the pile of larger, clearer bubbles, each reflecting the whole scene, and sparkling with rainbow tints, until Aubrey ruthlessly dashes all into fragments with his hand, and Mary pronounces it stiff enough 
and presents a pipe to little Daisy, who, drawing the liquid into her mouth, throws it away with a grimace, and declares that she does not like bubbles. But Aubrey stands with swelled cheeks, gravely puffing at the sealing-waxed extremity. Out pours a confused assemblage of froth, but the glassy globe slowly expands the little branching veins, flowing down on either side, bearing an enlarging miniature of the sky, the clouds, the tulip-tree. Aubrey pauses to exclaim, "'But where is it? Try again!' A proud bubble, as Mary calls it, a peacock, in blended pink and green, is this transparent sphere, reflecting an embellishing house, wall, and shrubs. It is too beautiful. It is gone. Mary undertakes to give a lesson and blows deliberately without the slightest result. Again, she waves her disengaged hand in silent exultation as the airy balls detach themselves and float off on the summer breeze with a tardy, graceful, uncertain motion. Daisy rushes after them, catches at them, and looks at her empty fingers with a puzzled, All gone! as plainly expressed by Toby, who snaps at them and shakes his head with offended dignity at the shock of his meeting teeth, while the kitten frisks about them, striking at them with her paw, amazed at meeting vacancy. Even the grave Norman is drawn in. He agrees with Mary that bubbles used to fly over the wall, and that one once went into Mrs. Richardson's garret window, when her housemaid tried to catch it with a pair of tongs, and then ran downstairs screaming that there was a ghost in her room, but that was in Harry's time, the heroic age of the May nursery. He accepts a pipe, and his greater height raises it into a favorable current of air. The glistening balloon sails off. It flies, it soars. No, it is coming down. The children shout at it, as if to drive it up, but it willfully descends. They rush beneath, they try to waft it on high with their breath. There is a collision between Mary and Blanche. Aubrey perceives a taste of soapy water. The bubble is no more. It is vanished in his open mouth. Papa himself has taken a pipe, and the little ones are mounted on chairs, to be on a level with their tall elders. A painted globe is swimming along, hesitating at first, but the dancing motion is tending upwards. The rainbow tints glisten in the sunlight, all rush to assist it. If breath of the lips can uphold it, it should rise, indeed, up, above the wall, over Mrs. Richardson's elm, over the topmost branch. Hooray! Out of sight! Margaret adds her voice to the acclamations. Beat that if you can, Mary. That doubtful wind keeps you suspended in a graceful minuet. Its pace is accelerated, but earthwards. It has committed self-destruction by running afoul of a rosebush. A general blank. You hear, Ethel? said Norman, as the elders laughed at each other's baffled faces. I am more surprised to find you here, she answered. Excitement, said Norman, smiling. One cause is as good as another for it. Very pretty sport, said Dr. May. You should write a poem on it, Norman. It is an exhausted subject, said Norman. Bubble and trouble are too obvious a rhyme. Ha! There it goes. It will be over the house. That's right. Everyone joined in the outcry. Whose is it? Blanche's. Hooray for Blanche! Well done, white mayflower there, said the doctor. That is what I meant. See the applause gained by a proud bubble that flies. 
don't we all bow down to it and waft it up with the whole force of our lungs air as it is and when it fairly goes out of sight is there any exhilaration or applause that surpasses ours the whole world being bent on making painted bubbles fly over the house said norman far more thoughtfully than his father it is a fair pattern of life and fame i was thinking continued dr may what was the most unalloyed exultation i remember harry's when you were made ducks whispered ethel to her brother not mine said norman briefly i believe said dr may i never knew such glorification as when aubrey spencer climbed the poor old market cross we all felt ourselves made illustrious for ever in his person nay papa when you got that gold medal must have been the grandest time said blanche who had been listening dr may laughed and patted her i blanche why i was excessively amazed that is all not in norman's way but i had been doing next to nothing to the very last then fell into an agony and worked like a horse thinking myself sure of failure and that my mother and my uncle would break their hearts but when you heard that you had it persisted blanche why then i found i must be a much cleverer fellow than i thought for said he laughing but i was ashamed of myself and of the authorities for choosing such an idle dog and vexed that other plodding lads missed it who deserved it more than i of course said norman in a low voice that is what one always feels i had rather blow soap bubbles where was dr spencer asked ethel not competing he had been ready a year before and had gained it or i should have had no chance poor spencer what would i not give to see him or hear of him the last was how long ago said ethel six years when he was setting off to return from punchinagore said dr may sighing i gave him up his health was broken and there was no one to look after him he was the sort of man to have a nameless grave and a name too blessed for fame ethel would have asked further of her father's dear old friend but there were sounds denoting an arrival and margaret beckoned to them as miss rivers and her brother were ushered into the drawing-room and blanche instantly fled away with her basin to hide herself in the schoolroom meta skipped out and soon was established on the grass an attraction to all the live creatures as it seemed for the kitten came and was caressed till her own graceful nippin was ready to fight with the uncouth toby for the possession of a resting-place on the skirt of her habit while daisy nestled up to her as claiming a privilege and aubrey kept guard over the dogs meta inquired after a huge doll dr hoxton's gift to daisy at the bazaar she's in margaret's wardrobe was the answer because aubrey tied her hands behind her and was going to offer her up on the nursery grate oh aubrey that was too cruel no returned aubrey she was iphigenia going to be sacrificed mary unconsciously acted diana said ethel and bore the victim away pray was daisy a willing clytemanestra asked meta oh yes she liked it said aubrey while meta looked discomfited i never could get proper respect paid to dolls said margaret we deal too much in their natural enemies yes said ethel my only doll was like a heraldic lion cooped in all her parts harry and tom once made a general execution said flora there was a doll hanging to every baluster 
the number made up with rag george rivers burst out laughing his first sign of life and maida looked as if she had heard of so many murders i can't help feeling for a doll she said they used to be like sisters to me i feel as if they were wasted on children that see no character in them and only call them dolly i agree with you said margaret if there had been no live dolls richard and i should have reared our doll family as judiciously as tenderly there are treasures of carpentry still extant that he made for them oh i am so glad cried meta as if she had found another point of union if i were to confess there is a dear old rose in the secret recesses of my wardrobe i could as soon throw away my sister ha cried her brother laying hold of the child here little daisy will you give your doll to meta my name is gertrude margaret may said the little round mouth the fat arm was drawn back with all a baby's dignity and the rosy face was hidden in dr may's breast at the sound of george rivers's broad laugh and well done little one dr may put his arm round her turned aside from him and began talking to beta about mr rivers flora and norman made conversation for the brother and he presently asked norman to go out shooting with him but looked so amazed on hearing that norman was no sportsman that flora tried to save the family credit by mentioning hector's love of a gun which caused their guest to make a general tender of sporting privileges though added he with a drawl shooting is rather a nuisance especially alone meta told ethel a little part that he was so tired of going out alone that he had brought her here in search of a companion he comes in at eleven o'clock poor fellow quite tired with solitude said she and comes to me to be entertained indeed exclaimed ethel what can you do what i can said maida laughing whatever is not a horrid nuisance to him it would be a horrid nuisance to me said ethel bluntly if my brothers wanted me to amuse them all the morning your brothers oh said maida as if that were very different besides you have so much more to do i am only too glad and grateful when george will come to me at all you see i have always been too young to be his companion or find out what suited him and now he is so very kind and good-natured to me but what becomes of your business i get time one way or another there is the evening very often when i have sung both him and papa to sleep i had two hours all to myself yesterday night said maida with a look of congratulation and i had a famous reading of thirwall's greece i should think that such evenings were as bad as the mornings come ethel don't make me naughty large families like yours may have merry social evenings but i do assure you ours are very pleasant we are so pleased to have george at home and we really hope that he is taking a fancy to the dear grange you can't think how delighted papa is to have him content to stay quietly with us so long i must call him to go back now though or papa will be kept waiting when ethel had watched the tall ponderous brother help the bright fairy sister to fly airily into her saddle and her sparkling glance and wave of the hand as she cantered off contrasting with his slow bend and immobility of feature she could not help saying that meta's life certainly was not too charming with her fanciful valetudinarian father and that stupid idealist brother he is very amiable and good-natured interposed norman ha 
Norman, you are quite won by his invitation to shoot. How he despised you for refusing, as much as you despised him. Speak for yourself, said Norman. You fancy no sensible man likes shooting, but you are all wrong. Some of our best men are capital sportsmen. Why, there is Ogilvy. You know what he is. When I bring him down here, you will see that there is no sort of sport that he is not keen after. This poor fellow will never be keen after anything, said Dr. May. I pity him. Existence seems hard work to him. We shall have Baby calling him the detestable next, said Ethel. What a famous set-down she gave him. She is a thorough lady, and allows no liberties, said Dr. May. Ah, said Margaret, it is a proof of what I want to impression you. We really must leave off calling her Daisy when strangers are here. It is so much nicer, pleaded Mary. The very reason, said Margaret, fondling names should be kept for our innermost selves, not spread abroad, and made common. I remember when I used to be called Pegtop, and Flora Flossie. We were never allowed to use the names when any visitor was near, and we were asked if we could not be as fond of each other by our proper names. I think it was felt that there was a want of reserve in publishing our pet names to other people. Quite true, said Dr. May. Baby names never ought to go beyond home. It is the fashion to use them now, and, besides the folly, it seems, to me, an absolute injury to a girl to let her grow up with a nickname attached to her. I chimed in Norman. I hear men talking of Henny and Lou and the like, and you can't think how glad I have been that my sisters could not be known by any absurd word. It is a case where self-respect would make others behave properly, said Flora. True, said Dr. May, but if girls won't keep up their own dignity, their friends' duty is to do it for them. The mischief is in the intimate friends, who blazon the words to everyone. And then they call one formal, for trying to protect the right name, said Flora. It is, one half of it, silliness, and the other affectation of intimacy. Now I know, said Mary, why you are so careful to call Maida Miss Rivers to all the people here. I should hope so, cried Norman indignantly. Why, yes, Mary, said Margaret. I should hope ladylike feelings would prevent you from calling her Maida before... The Andersons, cried Ethel, laughing. Margaret was just going to say it. We only want Harry to exact the forfeit. Poor dear little hummingbird. It gives one an oppression on the chest to think of her having that great do-nothing brother on her hands all day. Thank you, said Norman. I shall know where I am not to look when I want a sister. Aye, said Ethel. When you come yawning to me to find amusement for you, you will see what I shall do. Stand over me with a stick while I print A.B.C. for Coxmoor, I suppose, said Norman. Well, why not? People are much better doing something than nothing. What? You won't even let me blow bubbles, said Norman. That is too intellectual, as Papa makes it, said Ethel. By the by, Norman, she added, as she had now walked with him a little apart. It always was a bubble of mine that you strive for the Newdigate prize. Ha! as the color rushed into his cheeks. You really have begun. I could not help it when I heard the subject given out for next year. Our old friend, Decius Mus. Have you finished? By no means, but it brought a world of notions into my head, such as I could not but set down. 
Now, Ethel, do oblige me. Do write another, as we used in old times. I had better not, said Ethel, standing thoughtful. If I throw myself into it, I shall hide everything else, and my wits will be wool-gathering. I have neither time nor poetry enough. You used to write English verse. I was cured of it. How? I wanted money for Coxmoor, and after persuading Papa, I got leave to send a ballad about a little girl and a white rose to that school magazine. I don't think Papa liked it, but there were some verses that touched him, and one had seen worse. It was actually inserted, and I was in high feather, till, oh, Norman, imagine Richard getting hold of this unlucky thing without a notion where it came from. Margaret put it before him to see what he would say to it. I am afraid it was not like a young lady's anonymous composition in a story. By no means. Imagine Richie picking my poor metaphors to pieces and weighing every sentimental line, and all in his dear old simplicity because he wanted to understand it, seeing that Margaret liked it. He had not the least intention of hurting my feelings, but never was I so annihilated. I thought he was doing it on purpose, till I saw how distressed he was when he found it out, and worse than all was, his saying at the end that he supposed it was very fine, but he could not understand it. Let me see it. Some time or other, but let me see Decius. Did you give up verses because Richard could not understand them? No, because I had other fish to fry, and I have not given them up altogether. I do scrabble down things that tease me by running in my head, when I want to clear my brains, and know what I mean but I can't do it without sitting up at night, and that stupefies me before breakfast. And as to making bubbles of them, Richie has cured me of that. It is a pity, said Norman. Nonsense, let me see Decius. I know he is splendid. I wish you would have tried, for all my best ideas are stolen from you. Ethel prevailed by following her brother to his room and perching herself on the window sill, while he read his performance from many slips of paper. The visions of those boyish days had not been forgotten. The Vesuvius scenery was much as Ethel had once described it, but with far more force and beauty. There was Decius's impassioned address to the beauteous land he was about to leave, and the remembrance of his Roman hearth, his farm, his children, whom he quitted for the pale shadows of an uncertain Elysium. There was a great hiatus in the middle, and Norman had many more authorities to consult, but the summing up was nearly complete, and Ethel thought the last lines grand, as they spoke of the noble consul's name living for evermore, added to the examples that nerve ardent souls to devote life, and all that is precious, to the call of duty. Fame is not their object. She may crown their pale brows, but for the good of others, not their own, a beacon light to the world. Self is no object of theirs, and it is the casting self behind that wins, not always the visible earthly strife, but the combat between good and evil. They are true victors, and whether chronicled or forgotten, true glory rests on their heads, the sole true glory that man can attain, namely, the reflected beams that crown them as shadowy types of him whom Decius knew not, the prince who gave himself for his people, and thus rendered death, for truth's sake, the highest boon to mortal man. "'Norman, you must finish it. "'When will it be given in?' "'Next spring, if at all, but keep the secret, Ethel. "'I cannot have my father's hopes raised.' "'I'll tell you of a motto,' said Ethel. 
Do you remember Mrs. Herman's mention of a saying of Sir Walter Scott? Never let me hear that brave blood has been shed in vain. It sends a roaring voice down through all time. If, said Norman, rather ashamed of the enthusiasm which, almost approaching to the so-called funny state of his younger days, had trembled in his voice and kindled his eyes, if you won't let me put Nassiter ridiculous must. Too obvious, said Ethel. Depend upon it. Every undergraduate has thought of it already. Ethel was always very happy over Norman's secrets, and went about smiling over Decius, and comparing her brother with such a one as poor Meta was inflicted with, wasting some superfluous pity and contempt on the weary weight that was inflicted on the Grange. "'What do you think of me?' said Margaret, one afternoon. "'I have had Mr. George Rivers here for two hours.' "'Alone? What could bring him here?' "'I told him that everyone was out, but he chose to sit down and seemed to be waiting. "'How could you get on?' Oh, we asked a few questions and brought out remarks, with great difficulty, at long intervals. He asked me if lying here was not a great nuisance, and, at last, he grew tired of twisting his mustache and went away. I trust it was a call to take leave. No, he thinks he shall sell out, for the army is a great nuisance. You seem to have got into his confidence. Yes, he said he wanted to settle down, but living with one's father was such a nuisance. "'By the by,' cried Ethel, laughing, "'Margaret, it strikes me that this is a dummy-dyke's courtship.' "'Of yourself?' said Margaret slyly. "'No, of Flora. You know, she has often met him at the Grange and other places, and she does contrive to amuse him and make him almost animated. I should not think he found her a great nuisance.' "'Poor man, I am sorry for him,' said Margaret." Oh, rejection will be very good for him, and give him something to think of. Flora will never let it come to that, said Margaret, but not one word about it, Ethel. Margaret and Etheldred kept their eyes open, and sometimes imagined, sometimes laughed at themselves for their speculations, and so October began, and Ethel laughed, as she questioned whether the Grange would feel the Hussars return to his quarters, as much as home would the departure of their scholar for Balliol. End of Part 2, Chapter 5 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona